So uh, I need you to mark two other places in your Bible. Okay? So we've got John 12 marked. Now turn a few pages to the left. The previous gospel is the gospel of Luke. And you'll want to mark chapter 19 of Luke. That should be fairly easy to find. A little more challenging is in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel. Now, if you don't feel comfortable going there, you don't want to turn there, I'll read it. You don't have to. But if you want to follow along, it's the book of Daniel. He is one of the prophets of the Old Testament. You'll find him right there near Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. So, uh, again, table of contents is handy. Daniel chapter 9 is where we'll be. And as pages finish turning, I will begin praying. And we'll look at the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem today. Father, I just pray, Lord, for all the things to come. Not just things to come for us immediately, but the things to come prophetically. The, the future things, the, the things of the end times, Lord. Your church is waiting for you to return. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be ready, to be actively waiting, to be busy about your business until you come for us. Lord, some would say that it's not going to happen, just as they said in the day of the apostles, that, that you're, you're not coming back. But Lord, we believe that you are, and we want to be ready. So Lord, take this time today, uh, confirm to us the reality of, of your word through fulfilled prophecy in, in your Bible. Lord, confirm to us the direction we've chosen for our lives to believe. Lord, confirm for us so that when we are challenged, so that when opposition comes uh, from relatives, from family, from coworkers, from academics, Lord, that we would not be swayed. That we would be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Lord, use this time to our benefit. Empower us to do the work you've called us to do. Particularly, Lord, we pray that love would abound more and more and even more to one another. It's in Jesus' name all God's people said once again, amen, amen. Amen. You all agree with those prayers. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we are in John chapter 12. We are just a little more than halfway through the Gospel of John, and, and much of what we have yet to read deals with a very, very short period of time. This last week before Jesus' crucifixion, and resurrection. We were last week in chapter 12. Jesus was in a town called Bethany where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. And they were in the home of of Simon the leper. And Mary, speaking of uh, I surrender all, Mary broke that that flask of spikenard that I brought uh, last week to... She didn't break the flask that I brought. It was not that old. (laughs) But she broke the, the, her dowry, possibly, and, and poured it all out for the Lord. And so we see in that just this desire and, and that, that part of us that needs to be more like Mary. You know, we're, we're, we're very good at being Martha's, you know, at serving. And sometimes serving is a way we can hide from the Lord. Serving is a way we, we serve the Lord and worship the Lord. Don't get me wrong. But sometimes it's much easier 
to avoid the presence of the Lord in our lives, to avoid time for God to, you know, you get alone with God and he begins to search your heart. And sometimes that's uncomfortable for us. And so we just serve so we can avoid that. And it looks good and it feels good, but you, you, you can't really rightly serve the Lord unless you're spending time in his presence. And so we get something from Mary, something from Martha, and also we'll see something from Lazarus today. So we pick up um, after Mary has poured out this, this spike nard. Uh, it fills the room with fragrance. Uh, it, Mary wipes it with her hair. It fills. Now she, sm- she has that smell. Jesus has that smell. She's done it for his burial, which will be uh, very soon. And right after this, Judas, Judas tries to rebuke Mary for doing that. Hey, we could have sold that for the poor Judas. Uh, seems to be ever the economical one. Hey, we could have given that to the poor. Meanwhile, the, the reality was he just wanted to, he was skimming off the top. He was the treasurer and he was a, a thief. So that's why he said what he said. But Jesus rebukes all the disciples, especially Jesus, and says, let her alone. And it's right after this, between verses 8 and 9, that Judas leaves and goes to betray. He, he goes to tell the, the high priests and the priests, uh, about Jesus. He goes to give him away. And, and he knows there's a reward involved for him. So again, he's very economically driven. He's very financially driven. And if you love money, you won't love people. And if you love people, then you won't love money. You can't love both. So Judas, it, it goes to, to begin this plot. Now verse 9 says, A great many of the Jews knew that Jesus was there in, in Bethany. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the Jews, they had found out, hey, Jesus is nearby. He's two miles away. And they're going to Bethany. They're, this crowd is going. And you, you think they'd be going to see Jesus. But they're going to see not just Jesus, but they want to see Lazarus. Lazarus has taken this, he, he's been a vessel on which God's power has been poured out. That's all. All he brought to the game, all he brought to the table was death. That's all. He, he just, his job was to die. And God's job was to raise him from the dead. And then after his book tour, after he wrote his book, My Four Days in the Grave, you know, and had his, had his book tour and made his millions and the, the movies on the way out, he's finding time to sit with Jesus. And there he is. And he is, you know, he's a living example of the power of God. Now, did God do this for everybody in, in that way that he did in Lazarus? No. He worked other, he, some, he, he restored sight. Others, he told truth. You know, the woman at the well and, and the blind man in these different ways. But for Lazarus, I think there's an example for all of us. Because we know, and we've heard it said, that Jesus didn't come and Jesus didn't die to make uh, bad people good. He didn't die to make good people better. He died to make dead people alive. And I sat in my office uh, a couple weeks ago, and I talked with a young man I've, I've known for a number of years. He's a precious young guy, and he's just lived a hard life, hard upbringing, and a lot of bitterness in his heart. A lot of, he's just, and I said to him, as I was looking at him on the couch, just this empty stare, I said, man, you're dead inside, aren't you? He said, yeah, he can't feel anything. He, he can't, th- he's just dead inside. You know anybody like that? Or maybe you're like that. Maybe you're sitting there, that's me. I'm just dead inside. And I want you to know that Jesus is the giver of life. That you don't have to stay dead inside. 
Because we, and clearly Paul says, you know, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. You know, we was living a dead life. It, you know, I was moving around doing things, but none of them were godly and none of them were meaningful. Most of them were self-centered. I was dead to God inside. And then Christ came into my life and all of a sudden, life took on new, I, I became alive. And if you don't, if, you, if you've never experienced that, no one, it's like trying to describe the beauty of the Alaskan mountain ranges, you know. Uh, if you've never been there, you can't get it. Like even looking at the church building on paper, you know, people go out there to see the pictures on the website, and then you go out there like, wow, I didn't, it looks so different in person than it does on paper. I can tell you, we can tell you about the new life in Jesus Christ, but unless you're willing to surrender all, repent, just, and, and just place your life before the Lord, he will give you life. I, I, and you'll never understand it to experience it. We can just tell you about it. And this is Lazarus. So they're coming. Some people come to Calvary Chapel. They, they've heard about Jesus. People have heard about Jesus for years, right? And, and people know about Jesus. Now, we live in a culture now that fewer people know about Jesus than you would think. Isn't that true? We're finding that the tide is turning, and you talk to little kids, they've not been raised in Christian homes. And there was a time when everybody, everybody knew, everybody sort of went to church or at least went to church at some time. The next generation coming up, we have an unchurched generation that's coming up. So they don't all know about Jesus, but many people have heard something about Jesus. But you know why people come here? And I, there's some people sitting in this room right now that I met in Charlottesville. And I said, don't, you know, don't come out to Fluvanna for church. You know, go, go to a church here in, in, in Charlottesville. And they said, no, we know you. We want to come to your church. We want to come where you go. And this is how it is with people. They may not know much about Jesus other than some flannel graph things they saw when they were in Sunday school, but they know you. And what they want to see is, is there a reality of what you say in your life? And that's why they came. They came not just to see Jesus, but they wanted to see experience. They wanted to touch and see this man that had been dead and was now alive. And is that we're so much in our lives is a substitute. So much in the church can be a substitute for really seeing the power of God work in people's lives. That's, you won't, we'll have to beat them back at the door if, if people continually submit their lives to Christ and allow his power to work through their lives. You won't be able to stop the, peop, the, the people coming when you see the reality of what Christ can do in a person's life. And that was what it was with Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. But, verse 10 says, the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also. Isn't that a kick? I mean, Jesus just raised him from the dead. We've got to kill him again. This is bad for business. You see, you have to realize the high priests are, are mostly from this political, or the, excuse me, this religious political party called the Sadducees. And they were the counterparts uh, to the Pharisees. They disagreed on a lot of things. The Sadducees, now this is great, the Sadducees did not believe in angels, they didn't believe in the Spirit, and they didn't believe in resurrection. So Lazarus is bad for their theology. And instead of saying, wow, you know, we've just learned something, we've just seen something that goes against what we believe, instead of saying, well, I guess we should change what we believe, they say, now we've got to get rid of the evidence. That's hardened, isn't it? That's a hard heart. So the, the chief priests plot to put Lazarus to death because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. All that that would be said of you 
on account of him, on account of her, many people believed. I wonder if you would look at your life and say, anybody's believed on account of you. Has anybody seen your life or have you ministered to anybody that's ultimately come to believe in Jesus Christ? And again, I'm not saying that condemningly. I'm telling you, what, what, what an awesome experience that is when you get to be instrumental when just living your life. Sometimes the, not even saying anything, just someone seeing you, seeing your passion, seeing your love, seeing your sacrifice, and just going, what in the world drives you? Because I need some of that. Unfortunately, the people, people look at the church life and they say, what drives you guys? We don't want any of that. You guys are a mess. I can have mess at work. I can have mess in my family. And, and because of, but because of Lazarus, because he was dead and he came to life, many went away and believed in Jesus. Now, verse 12 says, The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, uh, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So, the, the, so now we were six days before the Passover now we're five days before, before the Passover. This was the time. The Passover was the time we're coming up to. It's what we would call, or, or our version of it is Easter. It's Jesus sort of transformed that uh, uh, time to be about the cross and the crucifixion uh, to parallel the lambs that were slain during the Passover back in the book of Exodus. So that's what's happening in Israel, in Jerusalem. They're getting ready to begin uh, inspecting the lambs that would be, they would spend four days inspecting lambs to make sure they were free of blemish. And then on, they would be sacrificed. And at this time, there are a great many people in Jerusalem. This was a yearly feast. It was commemorative of this thing that happened in Exodus where they were set free from Egypt. And it was a mandatory feast. If you lived a certain uh, distance from Jerusalem, you had to come. But many people wanted to come anyway. It was just a, an amazing uh, swelling of the population to possibly, uh, some say as many as uh, 2.5 million people in Jerusalem. And they get that because uh, this year, there are the records of this year uh, that, uh, where Jesus is uh, going to be crucified. 250,000 lambs killed, sacrificed there in Jerusalem for the Passover. And there was a lamb for every 10 people, roughly. So 250,000, so much that the blood of lambs filled the Kidron Valley. We go there when we go to Jerusalem. We, we see this area, the Mount of Olives and, and whatnot. So there's a great multitude. These are the common people. And some are coming with him and some are coming out from the city to meet him. And it creates this big, huge parade almost. Tremendous time. Tremendous swelling of people. Tremendous anticipation. And they begin laying palm branches at his feet. They've cut him. There's palm trees along the way and they cut down the palm trees. And what they're saying is, hey, this is a political thing that's happening. They were so expectant in 63 BC under uh, the Roman Emperor Pompey the Great. Israel lost its independence. Israel lost the ability to govern itself. They became a, a ruled over by the Romans. 63 BC, the Romans conquered Jerusalem. And they had been from that time until this time under the Roman rule. They were just, uh, had been incorporated into the Roman Empire. And they were, it was not an easy situation for them. It was not a happy situation for them. It was not a good situation for them. So all of their hopes were laid on the fact that they're waiting for, this is the time that God 
should be sending his Messiah to rescue us from where we are. And so they see Jesus and they say, hey, this, this is the guy. And so they, as he's coming in, they're laying palm branches down. This is a, a celebration of victory. Palm branch is the, is the, the symbol of victory for a, a conquering king. And they sing this song. This is where we celebrate Palm Sunday. This is what Palm Sunday is all about. Week before Easter is Palm Sunday. And they sing Hosanna. Blessed is he. Hosanna means save now. So they're laying the palm branches down, uh, commemorating, vic- or not commemorating, but uh, resembling victory. And they're singing Hosanna. Save now. Save now. And this is exciting. This is anticipating. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. That when Rome took over, they took away the king, and, they, and Israel hadn't had their own king on the throne since then. And so you can imagine the political anticipation, even the religious anticipation. And then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So this is a quote from Zechariah, the Old Testament. And Jesus, he sends, you have to read some of the other Gospels to get the whole story. You can read this in, if you like to take notes, Matthew 21, Luke 19, Mark 11. All tell the same story, add different details. Jesus sends his disciples, hey, go to that neighboring town. Tell them, you know, go find a donkey and the colt of the donkey standing next to it, and tell them, you know, untie it and bring it. If anybody questions you, tell them the Lord has need of it. So if you see me getting into your car out in the parking lot, if you drive a nice car, and you see me getting into it, and I say, the Lord hath need of it, just let me have it, okay? The Lord hath need of it. Cool. All right. The, uh, so as Jesus is coming, and this tremendous uh, energy... And he quotes Zechariah clearly uh, using that passage and applying it to himself, showing them. It says that as it was written by Zechariah, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, that's a miracle right there. Some of you, we used to be called Cowboy Chapel when we first started because I was involved in the horse industry. A lot of the initial people that came to Calvary Chapel were involved in the horse industry. And I don't know if you've ever been around horses very much, but a colt, a horse's colt, you know, when that thing's not been broke, it's, you don't just go over and hop on and say, you know, come on, let's go for a ride. That, that, that thing will kill you. Now, a donkey is a whole different animal. Donkeys, we used to say that a, a donkey will kick you with one foot, step on you with the other, and make the whole thing look like it was your fault. <laughs> they are stubborn. And so with a... You know, this dog, this colt, never been ridden, never been sat on, and should have completely gone ballistic when anybody tried to sit on his back, and yet completely submitted. You know, sometimes donkeys are smarter than people. Matter of fact, Isaiah chapter 1, you know, an ox knows where to get its food, and a dumb donkey knows where its master's, uh, where the stall is, where it's fed. But, my, but Isaiah said, my people Israel don't know. So this donkey sometimes knows more than a people do to submit itself and, and yield itself to Jesus' um, leadership, to Jesus' uh, humble itself under the Lord. So the donkey does that. Uh, now, I've asked you to mark Luke 19, did I not? So let's go there real quick because I want you to see something. 
in the midst of all this, it's supposed to be a very joyous occasion, right? And you'd think, you know, they're expecting Jesus to roll in and, and begin the insurrection against Rome. Begin to uh, raise up and mount up uh, the strength of the Jews to combat and take back over Jerusalem again from the Jews. And see, this is the problem. Their expectations were wrong. They were expecting a political kingdom. And Jesus was bringing in a spiritual one. And notice what he's riding. He's not riding the white horse of victory, is he? He's, ride, he's coming in and he's lowly. Right? He's, when, when a king conquers, you know, when a king conquers a land, they come in and, and they are putting out their best. If you see in Russia or China or North Korea, they're doing these, these um, staging these military parades to show their strength. And you would think if Jesus was coming to conquer, he'd be coming to show his strength. And he'd be on some fancy white stallion. And all the people around him. And, but that's not how he comes in. Now he's coming back on a white horse. And that's going to be a little different. But he comes in lowly. Humbly. And he's riding on a donkey. And what's Jesus doing all this? Look at Luke 19. Verse 41. It says, now as he drew near, as he's coming into the city, the whole city is being moved. The whole city is shaken like an earthquake, uh, Matthew tells us. And as he's coming in, he says, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. Now, wait a second. So everybody is cheering and yelling. You ever feel that way? Like some, somehow, like maybe even this morning you came in and everybody's clapping and singing the songs and having a good time. And you like just had something rotten happen. And everybody's happy and, and, and you're like there, like barely holding it together. That's how it would feel for Jesus. You ever been in a place like that? Where, where you're, just, you're just barely holding it together? And everybody else seems to be happy and just feel like there's this disconnect? Well, for Jesus, there's this tremendous disconnect. Because he knows what's coming. And I'll tell you, I'm glad I don't know the future. Because that would be really hard, I think, sometimes. To, that'd be a heavy burden to know the future. I mean, in some ways, we do know the future because we have God's word. But here, uh, Jesus says, so he's weeping. And that's not just tears. It's tears and an outward look of grief. And I wonder if anybody's even noticing. They're all caught up in what they're doing. They're all caught up in their expectations. And I, don't, I wonder if anybody's noticed. Well, evidently, Luke noticed. Or at least was told about it. And he's weeping over it. And he says, if you had known, even you, especially in this year day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes because they didn't want to see them. They had their, they had their, because they had their expectations of what Jesus was going to do, they missed what he was really trying to do. And, and, I, and I know many of us can relate to this because we look at people we know and we say, oh, if only you knew what God means for you for peace. If only you understood that today is the day of your salvation. If only you would receive him as he is. And he would bring peace to your life. But now, because you don't want to see it, it's hidden from your eyes. Look at verse 43. Here's the result. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And, and so the implication is there is that they should have known the time when their king, the Messiah, would come. 
how would they know? Well, that leads us to Daniel chapter 9. If you're there, go with me to, to Daniel 9. See, they could have and they should have known exactly when Jesus was coming. How would they know? The prophecy of Daniel 9 told them. Now, this is a little bit heady. Hang with me. And here's why I'm going to share this. I could just gloss it over, but here's what's important. We're reading a book that is, has a tremendous amount of prophecy. Now, prophecy meaning things that are predicted years uh, before they ever happen. And God's word is so full of that, uh, you don't see that in other religious books. Or you see things that are said that don't come true. So much, you know, from, from the prophecies about Jesus riding in on a donkey, and here he comes, right? He's clearly showing, here I am. Remember Zechariah said, your king is riding on a donkey. Well, da-dum-da-dum-da-dum, here I come, you know. Put two and two together, people. Here I am. Clearly taking these things to himself. Well, look at Daniel 9, because prophecy continues to convince me that what I believe is true. Even when I don't understand it, even when it doesn't make sense, say, Lord, your word is truth. And you know the end from the beginning. Now, Daniel was written during the Babylonian captivity. Daniel was a captive in Babylon. And this is called the 70 weeks prophecy. I'll skip the first, skip verse 24. We'll go down to verse 25, where Daniel says, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome time. So there's a lot here. I'm going to give you the brief brief uh, on this because we don't have a lot of time to go through this. But basically, Daniel says there's going to be a time period. It's going to be 69 weeks altogether. Seven plus 62 is 69, right? And a week is how long? Seven days typically. But you can have, if you had a week of eggs, how many eggs would you have? Seven eggs would be a week of eggs. A week of days is seven days. A week of months would be seven. A week just means seven. So you have seven months. A week of years would be seven years. So you've got 400, or excuse me, you've got uh, 69 weeks of years. So 69 times seven is uh, 483 years until the prince comes. So from the time that the command is given to rebuild. When did that happen? That happened under a man named Artaxerxes Longimanus in, I wrote this down here, 445 B.C. And there's a man named Sir Robert Anderson. You can get his book called The Coming Prince who works for the Royal Observatory in England. And he calculated this stuff all out based on a 360-day-per-year calendar, the Babylonian calendar. He calculated from that date, 445 B.C., when Nehemiah was sent to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, the walls, until the day that the Messiah, the Prince, would come in, would be uh, uh, 173,880 days. And if you add that up from 445 B.C., guess where you end up? This day. This day. Now, you take my word for it. You can go do the research yourself if you have that kind of time. Or you can read Sir Robert Anderson's book who did the research for all of us. But what the point is, is that they could have calculated and should have calculated what would happen on this day, that this would be the day that their prince would come. So he's riding the donkey. He's coming on the exact day that it was predicted he would come. And let me just read this a little farther while we're in Daniel. 
after the 62 weeks, so after that, that second period of weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Messiah shall be cut off. See, they thought there would, there, because they read, read Isaiah 53, because they read this in Daniel, they thought there must be two Messiahs because the Savior is, is going to be the, he's the conquering king. How can he be cut off? They didn't understand that he would first suffer and be crucified and be killed. So they're trying to think, well, maybe there are two saviors. Maybe there's two messiahs, one that suffers and, and one that conquers. So they're struggling to put these things together. Now, back to, um, back to John, if you would. And we'll, we'll wrap this up and begin for communion. And I want you to just, uh, the reason I share that is because God's word is so remarkable. These things precisely working out, not close, not 50%, 100% working out. So verse 16 says, his disciples did not understand these things at first. And some of you are going, uh-huh, we get that. We don't understand either. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. They said, yeah, man, we were there. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The raising of Lazarus was huge. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So that's where we leave it off for today with... um, the interesting thing is their expectations. Jesus comes into Jerusalem that day, riding on the donkey. They throw the palm branches. They're singing Hosanna. He comes in, he looks around, and he leaves. Totally anticlimactic. Totally not with it. Then he'll come back the next day. He'll overturn the tables of the, uh, of the money changers in the temple, and, uh, and he'll spend some time teaching and whatnot. But uh, again, I don't know what your expectations are of Jesus in your life. I don't know if you expect him, you know, to overturn the world, overturn this, to to change that, to do this. But be careful. Just let him be who he is. You worship him because he's worthy. You worship him because he gave his life for you. So that you could live. And you let him do what he wants. He's Jesus. He is. As we always say, Father knows best. He knows what you need. He knows what I need. And he knows. And here's the thing. Expectations will keep you from seeing what's really there. You'll miss it. I expect that God will completely fulfill his word to me. Sometimes I don't understand how. So I hang on the things I know to be true. And I let Jesus work out the details. John the Baptist didn't understand why he was in jail. Jesus, are you the one or should we expect another? And the disciples, they didn't understand what was going on at the time. You ever done that? You read God's word, you go, I don't understand what this means. And then later on, you go, oh, now I get it. Anybody else have that experience? There's some things I've totally read over. I don't understand what that is all about. And then and you ignore it. You go, oh, well, I don't get that. And then later on, you come back and go, oh, I remember when I read that passage. And now it makes sense. And that's what the disciples were experiencing. They didn't understand all this till later on. And I, and I appreciate that. So uh, we're going to sh- share communion together. Uh, Phil, if you would come on back up with your praise team.
Let's just take the first song and uh, just kind of get ourselves focused on the Lord, refocused on the Lord. I know it's a little bit of heady stuff today. It's all right. You guys can handle it, right? You can handle it. There's going to be a quiz on the way out. I want to know exactly what year Artaxerxes gave the uh, command and how many days are in 483 years. And if you can't answer them, then, well, 20 lashes with a wet noodle. That's what my parents used to threaten me with. 20 lashes with a wet noodle. What's that all about, Dad? Who's got wet noodles laying around? (laughs) We're going to break bread together. And uh, we'll pass around in a few minutes. And uh, here's my heart. Can I just share my heart with you as as Philip prepares this team? Um, the the, The nature of church is changing in our day, is it not? There, there is a, a lot of uh, compromise, uh, a lot of, um, and more and more, uh, making Jesus what we want him to be. Making church what we want it to be. A lot of substitution of, of man's wisdom, man's ideas, man-centered stuff. And that's not what I want. I didn't get into this. I could have that anywhere. I didn't get into this because... Uh, I wanted to accomplish something myself or I needed something for myself. I got, I'm sitting where I'm sitting and I became a Christian because I recognized I was tremendously empty. I was just, I was empty and, and I was, I looked like a good person, but I was, I had an area in my life, a specific area, I had lots of areas I didn't see, specific area that the Lord challenged me on and, he, and I knew that I was living in sin. And I knew it was time to get right with God. So I don't, I hadn't ever read the Bible. How do I know that? How do I know this? I know it's just instinctive almost, just the Spirit of God working in my life. And you guys all have your stories too. And some of you, today might be the first day of the rest of your story. And, and it's up to you, you know, how that goes because you get to choose this day whom you will serve. And so in a few minutes as we, as we pass out, the, you're going to hold on to the elements, the, the bread. Uh, the body of Christ and, and the, the wine, the, well, we don't have wine here, the grape juice, the blood of Christ. And we're going to hold on to those things. We'll all partake together. And I, and I want you to just think today and, and re-examine why you're here. And, and if you're, if, if this is what you want in your life, if this is, so so that you can choose afresh this day. For those of you that are already saved, you can choose again today. You know, I looked at my wife the other day, and it's like, well, we've all been married. Uh, this will be 19 years this May. Uh, tremendous that she married me. Greatest miracle of my life that my wife married me. And I looked at her, and it's like, I would choose you again, like all over again. And, and even God says to Israel, I still choose you. And God says to you today, I still choose you. But he wants to know from you, do you still choose me? There's so many things out, so many promises, so many things to chase. And and I think God might ask us today, you know, Will, do you still choose me? Jeannie Hardiman, do you still choose me? Curtis, do you still choose me? When there's a choice. Lisa, do you still choose me? So we're going to sing a little bit and have a time of prayer and as you mill this